So you guys, remember where we left Moses last week? We looked a lot last week at, the, at kind of like chapter 10, where it was like this two sandwiches of uh, kind of like an Oreo cookie, right? And on either cookie, there was this picture of Moses basically telling God like, here I am, send somebody else, right? He didn't want anything. He was like, I'm, I've got uncircumcised lips. I've got all this and that. And we looked at the fact that like Isaiah, he said something very similar. He said, here am I, send me, right? In other words, like, man, God, I just told you that I'm a man of unclean lips. And God, I trust that you cleanse my lips as he did. And now I'm saying, send me. We don't see that with Moses in chapter 10. We see two different times where he mentions to God, the same thing when God's like, hey, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go to the Pharaoh. I want you to do this after he'd already done it the first time. And so he'd gone to God and complained and been like, what the heck, God? Like, can't believe that this is how it went down. And he should have known that because how many times did we read at the burning bush did God say, like, Pharaoh's not going to dig this. This is not going to go well for you and the people of Israel. And yet the very first time they do it, they're like, yeah, get out of jail free. No, it's worse. We're going to see more of that tonight, but we look last week at Moses walking in his own weakness instead of walking in God's power and promise, right? He had promised him, look, you guys are getting out of Egypt. It's a promise. You're coming out of Egypt. That's a fact. It's not going to be easy, but in my power, it's going to happen. And we saw, you guys, that these two times that God asked Moses to move forward, Moses argued with him. Tonight, we're going to continue this examination, and we're going to kind of see this beautiful way to me that I see that God, just so gracious and loving, he lovingly leads, he fulfills his will with patience, you guys, and a continuation of a call on Moses' life. And I need us to stop for a second before we even jump in and just get a hold of how many times we see in the Bible, and specifically here with Moses, that we serve a God, you guys, that doesn't give up on us, even when we're blatantly being like, I don't want to do this. That's awesome. Does God need to use us? No. God's, God could do it however God wanted to, right? God could write it in the sky. God could send angels to everyone's doorstep. God could just blind everybody and be like, you want your sight back? Come to Jesus. And he could do whatever he wanted, but he doesn't. He chooses to use us. He chooses to use some fallible folks. And man, it's just, I'm super thankful that God doesn't give up on us, that he didn't give up on Moses, even though really Moses gave him every reason <laughs> to just call it quits, right? Listen, in church leadership, I'll tell you this. If someone says no as many times as Moses, I'll be like, all right, obviously you don't want to do it. Let's move on, right? <laughs> God's like, no, you're the man. You're the one. You're the one I got. Remember that. I'm not saying I'm God. I'm just saying if I chase you relentlessly, I'll be like, God wants something for you. I think so. No. You guys, God keeps calling us to a deeper relationship with him and in that more usefulness for his kingdom. And I'm thankful that he does that for us. Yeah. So also tonight, you guys, we're going to begin looking at these 10 plagues that are poured out from chapter seven to chapter 12. So buckle up. We're in for some fun over these next couple chapters, and there is a lot for us to look at, and we're going to look a lot at, at some of that tonight, at least the first plague here. And so let's start in chapter 7, verse 1 of Exodus. It says this. It says, So the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you as God to Pharaoh, and Aaron, your brother, shall be your prophet. 
You shall speak all that I command you, and Aaron, your brother, shall tell Pharaoh to send the children of Israel out of his land. So let's stop there for a second. So what did God mean? Did you guys ever, you ever read something in the Bible and you're like, so Moses is going to be God to Pharaoh? That's a kind of an odd statement, right? If we don't kind of think through what the point is here. And so what did, what did that mean? Well, Moses, you guys, basically what God's saying is you're going to be the spokesperson to Pharaoh. You're going to be my spokesperson. You're, think about it like this. Did you guys ever think about like what a, um, this isn't in my notes, so of course I'm not thinking of the word, a liaison for our government. I can't think of the exact specific word, but like a, a government, uh, like a person, thank you, an ambassador. That's essentially it. And what does the ambassador go with? The power of the country, right? You're going in the power of the country to whatever country to represent or be an ambassador for that country. That's essentially what he's saying. You're going to be God to Pharaoh. In other words, Pharaoh who doesn't believe in me, who can't see me, who doesn't really like jive with the fact that I am who I am, even though you say that, you're going to be God to him because he's going to see these miracles. He's going to see this stuff that's happening. And so to him, he's going to look and be like, whoa. And so to him, you are going to be my ambassador, my representation. So he's not saying that you're going to be God. He's just saying that he's going to be that. And so then that makes Aaron, you guys. And why? Remember, we talked about this. Moses should have just been the prophet. That's what we should have seen. But because Moses keeps arguing with God, God's like, fine, I'll send you your brother. You're going to love that. He's going to cause you all sorts of problems, right? And we see that all. We're going to walk through all of this stuff where I think Moses, if he didn't have gray hair, he probably had it, I think, by the time they made it to Mount Sinai, right? Aaron was a pain in the butt, sort of, in a lot of different ways, right? And God used him, and God used the rod of Aaron and all these different pieces to the life of Aaron. Again, thank God he uses fallible people. But man, Aaron was not the plan initially. God kind of relented to Moses in the process. And so Aaron was going to be this thing. So Moses was announcing these plagues that God already told Moses, Pharaoh's not going to accept them. He's not going to know who I am. He's not going to accept these things. But Aaron would be the prophet. What does that mean? What do prophets do, you guys? Think about some of the things that we see in the prophecies. We just got done with the book of Ezekiel. Remember when Ezekiel laid on his side for so many days and then cooked over like cow dung because God said human feces and he's like, please don't, you know, and God relented there. But then what did he do? Remember, he like, he built like this little like fort out of sticks and he was like, eh. (laughs) Or the one part where he just went and looked sternly at it, right? To represent what God was thinking about Israel, about Jerusalem specifically, right? So there's like all these different things that they do. What about... Do you guys ever think about Isaiah? Isaiah walked around naked. That's what the word says. Some scholars believe he was wearing at least something, but I don't know. Who knows? We can ask him when we get there. But at any rate, he definitely walked around in a very uncomfortable position, and it wasn't like he did it for a day. No, he did it for a long time. I don't remember exactly. I think it was over a year. It was a long time. Don't quote me on that. Somebody can look that up and come to me later and tell me what it was. But we see, you guys, that God constantly was using prophets in a way that was meant to be acted out, that there was something that was acted upon, that the prophets did. They didn't just speak. They did a lot of times, but they also acted out things. And so we're going to see that Aaron is the one that gets to act out the things that God is telling Moses to tell Aaron to do. So let's keep reading. Verse 3 in chapter 7 says this, and I will harden 
Pharaoh's heart. You guys, I circled that. Remember, we've talked about this many times. We're going to see even tonight a back and forth between Pharaoh hardened his heart and God saying, I harden Pharaoh's heart. If you fall on specific sides of certain thoughts of like Calvinism and Arminianism, you can go with that on what that all looks like. I believe that God knew Pharaoh was going to harden his heart. That's what I tend to believe. That's what I tend towards. And so it's not rocket science for God to say, Pharaoh's hardening his heart. So sure, I'm hardening it. You get my point? If you don't agree, that's fine. You're in good company. It says, then I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt, but Pharaoh will not heed you so that I may lay my hand on Egypt and bring my armies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. You guys notice yet again that God is making it clear that he isn't going to play along. Pharaoh's not going to play along. He's not going to play nice. God's going to keep telling Moses that. Obviously, Moses didn't get it the first time. Maybe this time he'll get it, right? Like, so God keeps saying that, but I need you to sh- see something in verse 5. God is using all of this for what reason? To show the Egyptian people that he's the Lord. Do you understand the grace that God's trying to pour out on these people? We need to hear this, especially when we're reading Old Testament scriptures. You guys, there is one of my professors at Messiah College that I, I really love dearly. He was a great guy. But he wrote this book called uh, The Divine Dictator. I can't remember the exact, but it's, or no, Divine Bad Behavior was the name of the book. And the idea is, is that as he views God in the Old Testament, he's like that God had like a, a bad attitude towards people. And I don't see that, you guys. God is the same today, yesterday, and forevermore, Amen. Right? There's no change in God. And so to me, we can see that God might have done something to get someone's attention, much like a parent might grab their kid and spank them or put them in timeout or put them in, you know, ground them. Why? Not because you hate their guts, not because you're divinely misbehaving or doing something crazy. No, why? Because you're actually trying to say, please, I love you. Let's not be a menace to society. Like, let's grow up and be a good human being, right? I think God does the same thing with us, but, sometimes, but it's even deeper because it's not just to make us good, even though sometimes that's a result of it. No, it's deeper than that. It's because he says, I want to actually know you. And sometimes I need to show you something beyond you so that you know that I'm bigger than you, that I am there, that I exist. And I think for the Egyptians especially, they thought they were the cat's meow at this point in history. Nobody was better. Rome doesn't exist yet, right? There's not really anybody that's there to fight them yet. They are it right then and there. And so the Pharaoh got a pretty big head. And everybody in Egypt's like, our gods are the gods. Obviously, nobody comes against us. So they didn't want to know Yahweh. They had no knowledge of Yahweh. And Yahweh's like, I'm going to let them know me. And I just need us to see that that is God's grace. It's God's grace, you guys. And that's hard to hear sometimes because it's still God's grace today sometimes. When we see people just maybe putting themselves in a ditch and then while they're down there, they just just feel like things are piling on. I feel like sometimes God is like, I'm going to drive you to the bottom so that you know how to look up. Not always. Hear me on that. Not always. But do you understand what I'm getting at? I don't think there's ever a moment where God is not 
pouring his grace and mercy out and saying, if you look up, this will be different. If you find me in this, not that everything's gonna be hunky-dory and better and unicorns and rainbows are gonna be the next day. No, but that there's a hope and there's a peace that, that cannot be found outside of Christ. And so to me, you guys, when I look around the world, and I have the privilege of interacting with folks in all sorts of dire circumstances at times, and when we pray with them, my hope is, God, if you're taking them out to the woodshed, I pray they listen. I pray they get a hold of this. Because I know that nothing is done in your world except to try and to bring out good. Right, to bring something out of that that is good. And what is the best thing? For someone to come to Christ. Right? That's always the best. God is going to use all of this to show the Egyptians who he is and to bring not just that, but I, I want you to see in verse 4 too, it's interesting. He says, Pharaoh's not going to heed you, but I'm going to lay hands on Egypt and bring, what does it say there? My armies and my people. Think about that. They have a lot of people, but do they have an army? <laughs> no. Isn't that kind of cool? Like, it makes me wonder when Moses goes there and Aaron's like, what army? <laughs> what are we talking about here? It's just cool that God's looking way ahead of where we are. And he always is because he sees that far ahead. And so let's keep reading. Verse 6 says this. Then Moses and Aaron did so just as the Lord commanded them. So they did. And Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. So we see that Moses and Aaron, you guys, were obedient at this point. And they went and they did what God told them to do. And we also see here, you guys, that Aaron is actually the older brother by three years. So now think about that. It's interesting. Because here's another thing, right? Like Jacob and Esau. Here's another moment where God chose to kind of flip the script again. And so I love that about God, that we can, we can grab some ideas from God that we see the consistency of that but I'm not a huge fan of systematic theologies. You guys know what that means? So sometimes people try to take God and systematize him and make him like fit into their little box. And I love that God's like, mm, maybe a little, but I'm not gonna fit into your box. <laughs> and there's no box that he fits squarely in. Calvinism and Arminianism, there's just no box that God's gonna fit in. Why? Because he's bigger than our boxes. And I praise God for that because if he could fit in our boxes, I don't know that he would be that big of a God. Right? And so I love that even here, he's kind of like, I'm going to do this a little different. And he see, we see parts where he does it that way, but not every time. And so anyway, I don't know. I just think that stuff's cool when we see stuff like that. That um, I don't know about you guys, but it helps me whenever I'm hearing other pastors, when I'm listening to other people talk that have very definitive ideas about what God does and doesn't do and all those things. It's helpful to me to think of these kind of oddball things that you're like, mm, not always is that true. Like that might have some element of truth, but it doesn't necessarily mean that's exactly what God does all the time. Do you get my, you get my point? Why does that matter? Well, if I'm being really honest, this isn't in my notes, but I'm, I came out of the very Pentecostal background, right? Assemblies of God. And, and uh, I don't know if you guys ever heard of the Brownsville Revival, right? Down in Brownsville, Florida. We sent a team down there, not at my pastor's behest, but at, at this group of people that wanted to go down there and essentially bottle the, bottle the revival and bring it back to Nebraska. <laughs> it didn't work. Why? Because that's not how it works. God's going to do what he's going to do in each individual heart. And God might blow something up in a certain area for a reason that we don't know. 
and it might just as quickly go away. I guess my point is, you guys, is I don't ever want to put God in a bottle. I don't ever want to put God in a box. I want God to do what God wants to do, but you know where that actually is way more, like, I don't want to say terrifying, but where it's way more freeing and yet a little bit terrifying is the fact that God might do something obviously scriptural. He's not going to break away from his own word, but he might do something that for all of us, we're like, whoa, didn't see that one coming. Whoa, that's a little different than we expected. I mean, guys, Calvary Chapel, there's a movie coming out that we're going to talk about more on Sunday, and I'm going to show the thing called Jesus Revolution that talks about the starting of Calvary Chapel. You guys realize that the starting of Calvary Chapel was because one old pastor guy named Chuck Smith decided to allow these crazy hippies, some of which were still on LSD, most of which were smoking joints out in the parking lot of the church and doing all this crazy stuff. And God did something amazing in that. And that is not expected. And you know what, guys? I'm asking God to do something like that again here. What, can, what does God want to do? I have no idea, but I'm glad that he's not going to fit into our little box. But I also am not afraid to say, God, do something. Move in us. Have your way in us. Anyway, sidetrack, sidetrack. So, Pharaoh, now, let's read verse 8. Said then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When Pharaoh speaks to you, saying, Show a miracle for yourselves, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your rod and cast it before Pharaoh and let it become a serpent. Right? And so stop there for a second. So God now tells Moses and Aaron exactly how the interaction with Pharaoh would, would look. Do you guys wish that God would do that for us all the time? <sighs> this is one of those things that I wish we could systematize God in and say, Lord, you're going to give me the lowdown on how the day is going to go, right? So I know I'm going to be talking to and Actually, Lord, it'd be great if you just give me a script so I could just read it. You know, like that would be awesome. He doesn't do that. It would be amazing if he did. But for Moses, I love that he did this. He's like, look, this is the way this is going to look. Pharaoh is going to ask for some supposed, quote unquote, authority from your God, from me. That's what God's saying, right? Because again, why would Pharaoh ask for this? Because he thinks it's all garbage anyway. He doesn't believe it. He thinks it's just ridiculous. He thinks that Moses must have a superiority complex because he was the Pharaoh's son at one point, right? Adopted son. And so how dare he come in and say these things but he was looking for this miracle and Moses was instructed to tell Aaron, hey, throw down your rod and it's gonna become a snake. Remember, we've looked at that happening to Moses already at the burning bush. So let's keep reading verse 10. It says, so Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and they did so just as the Lord commanded. And Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh and before his servants and it became a serpent. But Pharaoh also called the wise men and the sorcerers. And uh, so the magicians of Egypt, they also did in like manner with their enchantments. For every man threw down his rod and they became serpents. But Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods and Pharaoh's heart grew hard and he did not heed them as the Lord had said. So again, Moses and Aaron were in a good phase this chapter. They're listening. They're doing what God asked them to do without hesitation. They're just doing it. So they go in. He says it, throws down the rod, it becomes a snake. And like we said, this is not new territory for Moses. He's like, mm, I've seen that happen before. We got this, right? This is no big deal. God's got this. And so God did it. He said it would be that way, and he did it. Then the magicians in Pharaoh's court did the same thing with their rods. Isn't that a little curious? We're going to see this over and over again in these plagues. Especially the first few, for sure. But it is curious, you guys. And 
I read a lot of different commentaries, and I'll be honest with you, having attended multiple colleges to get my degree, there were different professors that had different ideas of this, right? Liberty teaches it one way, and Messiah teaches it another, and there's just some variations on this. So I'm going to give you all of them. Ready? The first one is this, that maybe, <laughs> this is, I think it's, this one's kind of ridiculous, but that maybe they had these dead snakes that were stiff from death, and that they like walked in and acted like it was a rod and then threw that down. <laughs> So they were just basically like dead snakes laying on the ground, and that's why the other snake ate them. The other thought is this, is that God himself granted the magicians some form of power to do this thing so that then the snakes could be eaten. But I've got to ask this question to that. So these first two I don't really agree with, because the second one that's interesting, and these are from well-known scholars, you guys. These are not like some wackadoodles. These are, I'm not going to name them, but they're people that you guys would read. Well, I will name some of them. Warren Wearsby you know, John Walverd, some guys that I really trust, but they have different ideas about this, and I don't really agree with either of them on this. So Wearsby's the one that kind of believes that maybe God gave them some level of authority, and, and I don't buy that, and here's why. If they don't believe in this God that's supposedly given them authority, what would make them think to throw a stick down and that it was going to do what then? Do you get my point? Like, it really doesn't jive with me. So here's the one I believe. I think Satan was given was imitated what God did. And we, you guys, this isn't the only place we see this. Jesus himself said those type of things, but flip over with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. This is where it becomes the clearest. And in the book of Revelation, we see certain things happening that are like, that Satan is allowed to imitate. Satan can imitate, but he cannot create. There's a massive difference. And I think this is what fits best. But 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting at verse 9 this is what Paul says about what's going to come, right, with the, with the Antichrist, but specifically as well with Satan. It says, the coming of the lawless one, which is the Antichrist, is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. You guys, there are other scriptures. I just happened to pick this one because I felt like it was the cleanest of uh, just to look at it all. But there are other scriptures that speak about this very idea that Satan has the ability to imitate, right? He can imitate things. And it's not the same as creating. And so he was able to imitate this thing. But now I need us to hear this too. And this is what's intriguing about this. The Hebrew word for snake can also be translated crocodile. And so there's also some scholars that believe that that might actually be a better translation to say that his stick became a crocodile and then the other two sticks became crocodiles and he ate the crocodiles. Why? Well, this may be a little wishful thinking on these scholars' parts, but the crocodile was a really big deal in Egypt. We see it all on the hieroglyphs. We see all the stuff. And so were snakes. So either one kind of fits, but it's interesting that that Hebrew word has a little bit more flavor than just specifically snake. So whatever that looks like, I'm just throwing out information to you guys. There's a lot of stuff here that I'm just throwing out to you just because to me, this stuff is interesting. But here's the big takeaway from all of this. You guys, miracles prove the reality of the supernatural. That's a fact. That's a fact. But you guys, it cannot necessarily prove that something or someone is true. And we need to hear that. God is the miracle worker, but Satan has the power to imitate things that seem like miracles, but really are just imitations. They're cheap imitations of what God already did. 
we need to be very careful not to get overly excited. Because like I've told you before, I was in a very Pentecostal church. That was where I was saved was in the Assemblies of God church. And, as, and I love that church. I really do. I still do love that denomination. I think that God's really moving a lot in that denomination. But the one thing that I will say that I witnessed numerous times was that sometimes, you guys, they, they waffled a little bit back and forth between chasing the miracles and not the miracle giver. Sometimes there was this waffling, and I saw that with the Brownsville Revival, sending people down to bring something back. It's like, well, you could have just stayed here in Nebraska, saved your money, and prayed to God. Yeah. Right? Do you know what I mean? Right. And so we need to be careful because, guys, it doesn't take much watching of TBN to find some miracle workers. And I'm not up here saying that I know where they're at with the Lord. What I am saying is we need to be careful yeah. not to chase things like miracles. Why? Because that doesn't necessarily lead us to a place where we're seeking God more. Now, I don't want to just stay there without bringing up some things, because the reality is, you guys, I've witnessed God do some amazing things. I saw a young boy who grew, who was born and was in a wheelchair, stand up and walk. I saw that with my own two eyes. And guess what? It was really interesting because in the Assemblies of God Church, that required tons of people praying and fasting and, and bleh, like pouring out tongues all over this person. And guess what? Guess what it looked like? Nothing. The person was up there speaking and he stood up and walked. <laughs> and everyone's like, whoa. And he, they're like, why'd you do that? And he's like, I don't know. I was asking Jesus. I wanted to walk. And I felt like Jesus said, okay. <laughs> and so I stood up and walked. And so I saw that happen and with my own two eyes. So God moved and it wasn't in the box that we were going to put it in. God did something amazing. So do miracles happen today? I believe they absolutely do. I am not a cessationist. I believe God is moving as much today as he was back then. And I love it. And I would love to see God move like that again. You know, like I'm down with that. And I often wonder, because I'll be honest with you, in other countries, you do hear about these things happening a lot more often. So I often wonder if in America it's because we would somehow monetize it and make it into something. And that might be why God's like, yeah, we're not going to play that game. I have no idea. I'm just talking. But I'm just saying, you guys, we don't need to chase the miracle, even though I'm also not saying that miracles don't exist and that they, they don't happen and that they don't lead us towards God. I'm saying they can get to a place where we start chasing miracles. Because I don't believe that the Antichrist is going to look like some evil guy with horns. Right? I think he's going to be a guy that even Christians are going to be like, that guy's pretty good. Right? And so if we're not careful and we start seeing him doing this miraculous stuff, we might be like, I think God's on his, I think God's with him and I think this. No, we need to know his word and we need to stay focused on God. Yeah. Now, I also believe that we won't really be here for most of that. Yeah. Right? If any of it. But I think Call in Thessalonians speaks to that idea of like, look, we just need to stay focused on God. Amen? So we see that God used the snake that he created to swallow the other snakes. This snake, this crocodile, whatever, they were symbols of power in Egypt. And so what was God showing the Pharaoh? What was God showing these magicians? Okay, fine. In the power of Satan, you created your, you know, you, you did your little thing. You, you imitated what I just did, but you see that they have zero power over me. It's my thing. My snake is going to eat your snake. Just like the Eagles are going to beat the Kansas City Chiefs. No, not even the same. 
right? But my point is, you guys, is that God's making it clear to these guys that like, okay, fine, you wanna play your little game, you wanna play your dark arts, just realize they are not on the same playing field that I'm on. It's me, I'm the boss here. I'm the, and that's the whole point God's trying to get across to Pharaoh, right? So the authority and power of Yahweh was on display over these false gods. And I need to say one other thing, you guys. I'm, as I was praying and, and, and studying this message, I wrote this whole thing and I'm like, okay, God, so where's the application? And so then I went back through again and I just started like kind of chewing on it more and saying like, okay, Lord, so what is there in these things? And something that God really brought out of this is this, you guys. God is just as powerful over our idols and over our sinful behaviors. Our sinful behavior sometimes can look some pretty powerful snakes, right? We're like, God, I can't not get control of this porn thing. I, God, my pride is out of, out of control, man, right? My, my need to be right at work is just killing me, God, and I don't want that in my life. But man, I just feel like I can't be defeated. I need you to hear this. God is bigger than those things. And I know that's easy to say, but I, I, I think sometimes we need to just hear it again. And we need to hear it again. And I, I don't know, as I studied this more, I'm like, God, man, I can throw down my snake sometimes. And I can be like, God, these are huge. I don't know what to do with these. I don't know. We need to know that God's bigger than those things. There's not one idol we're gonna put in place of him that's gonna last very long if we're actually seeking him. Does that make sense? God is gonna do a sanctifying work in our lives. We are works in progress, but here's the deal. As long as we're continuing to abide and press into him, you guys, we're not defeated. God is gonna defeat these things in our life. And can I say something? I need you to hear this. We can trust that God is so powerful that he can overpower and consume our idols and our sinful behaviors as we ask him to do that. And he can do that immediately. And a lot of times, in certain areas of my life anyway, and I'm sure yours too, he's doing it in increments that I wish he would move quicker on. But can I just encourage us all with this? If you're here tonight, you know Jesus, you are justified in his sight. So God's like, this will end. This doesn't own you. Like when you take your last breath here, you will never deal with this garbage again, ever. I'm thankful for that, you guys. I'm thankful for that. On days when you just feel like, man, I, I don't even know why I got out of bed today, right? My first thing I did when I got out of bed was probably sinful, Lord, and I feel like I just went downhill from there. Do you ever have days like that? I don't. No, I'm kidding. That's not true. I do a lot, right? Man, I'm like, dang, God, can you just shut my mouth, Lord? Why did you have to give me a job where I got to talk a lot? (laughs) Right? Like all these things that you do that you're like, oh, Lord, I'm not walking in the spirit with this person or God. I I know even, man, Lord, you gave me the, the wisdom enough to know, you know, Proverbs, right? Like that even a fool looks wise if he shuts his mouth. And sometimes I'm like, oh, thank you, God. But then I'm like, can you clean his mind up? Because if I poured out even half the thoughts I had in this moment. Oh, right? Can we just walk in the freedom that we're justified in God's sight? And can we also walk in the absolute grace and mercy that God has for us in the fact that we are being sanctified, that God is growing in us? Ah, it's encouraging to me, you guys. No idol, no sin is going to enter into heaven. When you get there, you're good. I've said it before and I'll say it again. I cannot wait to get to heaven and look around at all of us that know and all of us knowing each other and look at each other. We're like, oh, there you are. That's who you are, really. 
That's who you always were. It was just hidden. And you guys would be like, you don't look at all like you used to. <laughs> right? You're like, wow, all that junk came off. Something crazy's different going on. Okay, verse 14. Let's keep going. It says this. So the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hard. You think? He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning when he goes out to the water and you shall stand by the river's bank to meet him. And the rod which was turned to a serpent, remember that was Aaron's rod, you shall take in your hand. And you shall say to him, the Lord God, excuse me, of the Hebrews has sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But indeed, until now, you would not hear. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the waters which are in the river with the rod that is in my hand, and they shall be turned to blood. And the fish that are in the river shall die. The river shall stink, and the Egyptians will loathe to drink the water of the river. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, say, uh, spoke to Moses, say to Aaron, take your rod and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their streams, over their rivers, over their ponds, and over all their pools of water, that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in buckets of wood and pitchers of stone. And Moses and Aaron did so, just as the Lord commanded. So he lifted up the rod and struck the waters that were in the river, in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. And all the waters that were in the river were turned to blood. The fish that were in the river died. The river stank, and the Egyptians could not drink the water of the river. So there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. You guys, with every plague, <coughs> we're going to see that God is setting these Egyptian false gods to shame, to open shame. So he is actually making it clear here specifically that he is in authority and power over the world as a whole, but over this one specific area, the river. In this moment, he's saying, this river's not yours. This river's not yours. None of your false idols have any authority. They have no power. They're not real. So we see here this first plague of water turning to blood. You guys, the Nile, I need you to think about this. Has anyone ever been to Egypt? So Egypt, we all know this, it's, it's desert. There's not really a lot there. The Nile is the life of Egypt. Still, today, it's very much the life of Egypt. It's, it's everything. I mean, without the Nile, Egypt probably just wouldn't exist. Not like it does. Not with the millions of people in the city, right? Or I mean, in the country. And so this Nile was a source of life in multiple ways. It provided fish. It watered their crops. Its floods actually caused the fertile lands in some region to really allow it to be flourishing in those things. And actually, if you remember back when we read in the very, very first week we started Exodus, we went all the way back into Genesis and we looked at Joseph and all the people coming in, right? All of the brothers coming in. And where did they settle? In Goshen, right? And what was that? Because it was fertile land. This is that area that he's talking about. It's one of those areas where the land is dark. It's dark soil. Why? Because the all of that stuff that's in the bottom of the Nile, when the flood season comes, it gets churned up and kicked out onto the land. And then when the water recedes, all that soil stays. And so it's really fertile soil in some parts of Egypt. And so it's great land to grow. And so we see that the Nile did all that they needed it to do. Let's look at some other things. It was their way to stay clean. 
Why was the Pharaoh going down? Why did the Pharaoh's daughter go down initially when, he found, when she found Moses? Because they were bathing. They're going down to get clean. It gave them all they needed, you guys, in the middle of the desert heat. You could go down and cool off. You could go get yourself a big old bucket of water to drink. You could do whatever. And so they had this God, little G God, that was the God of the Nile, and it was represented basically as like an alligator sometimes. It sometimes is like this blue woman with no shirt on. Uh, and then there's a couple different hieroglyphs that show him as a man, but I don't know about that. Most, most of the stuff I was reading is that it was a, a blue woman. And her name was Happy, H-A-P-I, Happy. But she wasn't super happy in this moment. <laughs> I've waited all day. To say that joke. You guys don't even know how. Yes, the fact that somebody chuckled. Thank you. It made my dad's senses feel super happy right there. H-A-P-P-Y. So you guys, this God, she controlled their flooding. The cult priests that were in charge of this particular cult they would actually do rituals. They would kill things. They would you know, do all this crazy stuff. Why? Literally to say to Happy the whole year that when the flood season comes, that it would be right when it was supposed to happen and also that it would only go to a certain level so that it didn't ruin anything. So that was their whole goal was to make sure that the Pharaoh had all these people that were paid to just do that all year long so that the Nile would overflow its banks, but it would only do it to a certain extent and for a certain time so that everything would just run the way it was supposed to run. Sound familiar? Kind of sounds a little bit like how other areas would use Baal. Baal worship was sort of similar, right? It was a, like the God of money, but also the God of crops and all this other stuff sort of wrapped up into one. So it was economy and all this other stuff. And that was basically what this God was to them. Man, the Nile was everything. It was their economy. It was their everything. Their sustenance, all of it was all wrapped up into this person. So this was a very important God. And I think there's a reason God started right here. Because I think they're like, we're going to knock these guys down, but we're going to start with a big one, Right? Obviously, there's a lot of things to examine here from this moment in history. First off, God told Moses to do this when Pharaoh was there to see it. What's the point, you guys? Why? Do you think God was just trying to rub it in Pharaoh's face? No, I don't think God's vindictive. I don't think he's that kind of God, right? Like he doesn't ever show himself to be that. No, I think he was doing it to try to break Pharaoh's stony heart. Again, trying to show Pharaoh, like, I am real. You're going to know who I am. And you can choose at any point to stop this nonsense. And so he wanted it done right in front of him so that it wasn't like Moses coming up to him later and being like, by the way, river's blood, in case you needed to know. So then Pharaoh could easily be like, well, I don't know how that happened, but it could be a million other things. Kind of like scholars do today with the Red Sea, where it's like, well, it was probably an earthquake that caused all this, and that's what happened, and they probably passed it to Sea of Reeds, so it was like a low area, and so, you know what I'm talking about? We love to do those things. We love to justify ourselves and try to make something that is miraculous, not miraculous. And so I think God was like, no, this is a miracle, and I'm going to show you, because it's going to happen right in front of you. Yeah. So he's there. He's watching it. He never stops trying to reach Pharaoh's heart. And God makes it clear to Moses that he's supposed to take this rod of Aaron and yell out to Pharaoh before he does it. Like, hey, this is what I'm doing because you haven't listened. God is doing this to you because you will not listen. And all of this is not gonna point to happy. It's gonna point to Yahweh. And after that, Moses hands Aaron his rod back, obviously. 
and commanded Aaron, do this, strike the water. And he did. And immediately, you guys, the water turned to blood. And I need you to think about this impact that it instantly had on the Egyptians. It crippled them. Crippled them. Can you imagine? I mean, blood is a lot thicker than water, right? We hear that a lot, but I mean, it's, it's physically thicker than water. And so I can't imagine the fish breathed in too many times before they started floating. And blood itself isn't like the most sanitary thing, right? And I have no idea what this is like. I'm not trying to make more out of this than there is, but I'm just saying when it says that the river stunk, I would imagine it did. And I don't think it was just a fish. I think there's just, it's kind of gross. All that blood and the fish and the, eh, you know what I mean? It's kind of gross. There's no drinkable water. All the commerce that that river provided now immediately dried up. It doesn't exist anymore. So many things immediately halted at God's sovereign direction. And I need you to hear this. It seems like there was not anywhere that they were already getting water, that they're going to be able to get water. If someone had gone down the day prior and got water, I'll tell you how I read this and how a lot of scholars read this is that when it says that, that in the buckets of wood and pitchers of stone, that basically whatever had been taken and held back for drinking water or washing or whatever they were going to do with it, when they went out to get it, it was blood. Everything's blood. There's nothing to drink. Now, we're going to look later and find out that there was at least some way to get it, but it took a lot of work to get there. So it seems like anywhere there was already water, stuff that had been taken out, it's gone. It's blood. There was nothing that wasn't affected. Now, I also want to stop and think about this. This particular plague, does it say anywhere in here that the, that the Israelites were going to be getting some fresh water, that some magical spring was going to well up right in the middle of their dwelling? No, it doesn't say that anywhere. You guys, we see here, there was no special reprieve for the people of Israel. So it wasn't just the Egyptians suffering through this. They did too. They suffered through it just as much. They had no access to clean water as much as the Egyptians didn't. Can we recognize you guys that we are in the world, but not of it? We're in this world, but we're not of the world. And I need us to hear this because, you know, I've heard... Too many Christians say things like, well, God's going to just lay a curse upon America. And I'm like, okay, American, are you ready for that? Like, you think you're somehow going to magically be given a green card away from it? Or I don't know what green card, just given a free pass out of it? I don't think so. We need to think about these things. We as believers, you guys, if America has some discipline at God's hand, and I believe that's quite possible, you guys... We as believers may not be exempted from it. Now, we may. I have no idea what God might do or not do. I'm not saying I know. I'm saying we may not. We have biblical evidence here that it can happen that way. We see that all throughout. How many martyrs do we know about? That very well could have been like, ah, maybe, maybe I'll get out of this. No, you won't. God's taking you home. The key difference is, you guys, in all of this is this. We know God. We know God. We know that he can choose you guys at any moment to rescue us from things. We know that he'll walk through us with, through things as we're walking through them. And ultimately, you guys, we know he's going to take us home. If he chooses to do any of those three, can I just say something? We should be in a place of peace amidst the chaos. 
And I think that that's something that only Christians can understand. And you know what else I think? I think God actually uses that for his good too. I need us to hear this. Turkey and Syria with all of the destruction that's happening over there right now. Do you understand that Christians are walking through the same stuff they are? There's a Calvary Chapel pastor there, him and his wife, they both died. Their kids were not in the building. They died in the, in the earthquake. His kids are now fatherless and motherless. Their kids are. Their entire congregation wasn't in the church. It was just those two. They were the only two that died. So now they're pastorless at the moment. And there was just this cry for prayer. But I'm like, listen, we are not immune from these things. God is not saying that we're going to somehow get all these magic passes. It's why I'm actually okay with a mid-tribulation view of eschatology because I'm like, God, God can choose that way. Now, I'm, very, I'm a very hopeful pre-tribulation rapture guy, super hopeful guy, and I, I see that too. But I can see a mid-trib, and I think it's okay to, to, to think and talk about those things. Why? Because it's important that we get our heads around, especially as American Christians, that we will suffer things. And it's okay that we do because we have a hope in something so much more. And God might even use us in the midst of our suffering to bring others to them when they're like, why or how can you be so calm about this? And I'll be like, man, no, this stinks. I don't like this at all. But you know what? I trust that my God is bigger than these things. And I trust that God knows and there's not one thing that is out of his control. And I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he's walking me through it. And I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that when I go home, I'm done with this. And I'm going to such a better place. And so can you. Verse 22. It says, Then the magicians of Egypt did so with their enchantments. So what do they do? They imitate it again. <laughs> and Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them, as the Lord had said. And Pharaoh turned and went into his house. Neither was his heart moved by this. So all the Egyptians, now this is the thing you need to hear, all the Egyptians dug around the river for water to drink because they could not drink the water of the river. And seven days passed after the Lord had struck the river. So what did it require them to get fresh water? They had to dig deep wells. This is the desert, you guys. I'm sure this wasn't like a, you know, kick some dirt away and there's some water. No, they had to dig. They were putting forth effort. Now, I need us to think about this. Remember, all these Jews are doing the same exact thing. But think about the fact that these Egyptians had all the Jews to do all their hard work for them, and now they're having to put forth some effort too to get to the very thing that they needed. It's, it's interesting. So all the magicians of Egypt, they must have apparently dug one of these deep wells to get to the fresh groundwater, and then they were able to show Pharaoh, well, we can do the same thing. We can make blood out of this water. Which, if I were Pharaoh, I'd be like, yo, that was fresh water. <laughs> Why'd you just ruin it? Right? Like, that's hard to come by. Again, Satan can only imitate, he cannot create. Or, as we discussed earlier, there's some scholars believe, and if you want to believe this, it's fine, that they maybe put some type of food coloring in it and just change the color of it. <laughs> some people believe that too. I don't know. I tend to believe that, you know, what God's word says is probably what happened. So I'm thinking that's probably what happened is that it got turned to blood as well. And so here they are. And... I need us to hear, I need us to think about this. As we see Satan imitating, do you see what he's imitating? He's imitating destruction, right? Like 
there's a snake created, this thing that represents power, but it also isn't a good thing necessarily, right? We know all throughout scripture, the snake is not a highly regarded animal from the very beginning, right? From the, from the, the garden. And so here God does that. And then Satan's like, oh, I know that. I got that part. And so he creates these snakes and then they're devoured. But now what's going on here? I need you to think about this. If I were Pharaoh, you know what I would have told my magicians? Well, hey, we have happy. Like, she's the god of this Nile. I mean, their stupid god turned this into blood. Have her turn it back into fresh water. Wouldn't, doesn't that make sense? Yeah. She couldn't. And what couldn't Satan do? He couldn't do that either. He doesn't bring life. He brings death and destruction. So by cleaning up the river, that would have, to me, proven something to the Pharaoh. But no, it, they couldn't do that. Satan brings chaos, not order. And so Satan couldn't undo what God had done. So he basically just took a tiny little cup of water and was like, see, I can do it too. (laughs) To me, you guys, what I see here and what I think we're going to see as we continue through this is that Satan's going to imitate and imitate and there's things and then eventually it's going to get to a place where there's just no imitation, right? As we dig through this, if you guys have read that, you know, but at best, you guys, all we ever see Satan doing throughout all of this and all we ever see throughout scripture is him basically only replicating what God had already done. So what God created, he's like, "Mm, I think I can figure out a cheap imitation of that. I can do that. There's never the same power. There's never the same amount of ability. And I need us to hear that because there's some people that want to not see Satan here. Why? Because they think that it gives Satan more power than he has. And we got to remember, you guys, it reads like this in Revelation. How does Satan get to do anything? Job. How does Satan get to do anything? Because he goes to God and says, hey, can I do this? And God says, yes or no. Right? We need to understand that God is ultimately in charge of everything. There's not something here that's happening because God didn't allow it. But we also don't want to minimize Satan to a place where he isn't. He is an angel, a created angel. Right? Like, he, he does have a power. I'm not one of the fans, and this is another thing that I heard a lot whenever I was in the Assemblies of God, is this whole, like, I'm going to stomp on Satan's head. Yeah, I'm not that big. I'll let God stomp on his head. I'm not, I'm not that big. I'm human. I'm an idiot. Satan can easily stomp on my head. It's only by God's grace that he doesn't. Right? I'm not a fan of that. I'm not a big fan of that whole kind of movement of like, in Jesus' name, Satan, you're this and you're that, and I'm going to beat you up, Satan, and I'm going to take you to task, Satan. It's like, let's let God do that stuff. I'd be like, Satan, here's my papa. (laughs) Talk to him, right? You get my point? So I'm not trying to minimize Satan because I think Satan definitely has power. I'm also not trying to make him more than he is. And I've said this a thousand times, you guys. I think far too often another thing we do in the church is that we give Satan too much power. And we're like, Satan made me do this. And Satan made me do that. And Satan made me do that. Listen, there are plenty of sins that I confess that I'm like, I'm an idiot. And I did that. And Satan probably just stood back. And, and we've also talked about this. Satan has much bigger fish to fry than anyone in this room. We have this little tiny baby imp demon that's like, ee, 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 and kicks us in the shin. And then that's enough to send us flying off the deep end on things, Right? You guys understand what I'm getting at? The end result of all this is that Pharaoh hardened his heart even more. He was blind to the powerlessness of his belief because, you guys, he saw it done by somebody else. And I think there's something sadly familiar here. Too many people will use what they see elsewhere. 
Think about that. How many times have you talked to someone about Jesus and they're like, ah, I get my religious fix at yoga class. Or, you know, I mean, I really like that non-confrontational church down the road that doesn't actually talk about sin or hell or anything. That's more my jam. I've talked to Hindus, Buddhists, all sorts of people that have all sorts of reasons why they don't need Jesus, that they don't need to hear it. Why? Because in their mind, they've got this imitation, this thing that fills that role, but isn't real. That's kind of what I look at these plagues like. Satan's just like, here's this imitation thing that I can do. And it's not real. And I think that we see it in the world religions. <laughs> you guys understand that God actually has the harder task in, relig- in bringing people to him? You ever think about that? God makes this really exclusive statement in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. What Jesus did, right? I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to Father, the Father except through me. That's super exclusive. That's the only way in. He is the front door. He's everything. You will not see the house unless you walk through him. That's the only way you're getting through. Satan's like, I don't care if you even know who I am because do any other thing and you're mine. He's got the easy job. So the two major takeaways, you guys, of this chapter are this. First, we can walk in absolute confidence that God will accomplish his will. It's going to happen. And secondly, we may be asked to walk through some bad stuff while God accomplishes his will. And that's not a fun thing to hear. God, you guys, is not ever going to be swayed from doing his will. And I think there's rest in the fact that we can trust God God to bring about his ends. And I need to let that sink in. God wants to use each of us to do the things that he's laid out for his church to accomplish. And we can rest, you guys, in the fact that we can never, ever screw it up so bad that God is going to be like, oh, dang, I didn't get that job done. Just rest in that. So when God calls you to something, we've talked about this a thousand times, it's always going to be out of your comfort zone, and it's always going to be beyond you. I shouldn't say always, but very, very, very often I'll say, right? I can say in my own life, everything is always, it's always beyond me. It's always outside of my comfort zone. I don't find myself being used in ways that I'm like, got this, no problem, God. Why? Because at the end of that, I'd be like, look at what I did for you, God. Instead, I'm left with this. Man, God, look what you did through stupid me. Why? How would you do that, right? So you guys, rest in the fact that you will never screw up what God has planned when you step out in obedience and say, okay, God, I feel like you're calling me to do this. I'm going to do it. Listen, your words will never be bad enough that God will not accomplish his will. You will never be in a place where you're going to screw it up so royally. Notice I didn't say you'll never screw it up. I'm just saying you're never going to mess it up so bad that he's not going to get his plan accomplished. And the second thing is this, is that God may ask us to walk through a hard thing he is doing to get his will accomplished. And I need us to hear this, Christians. Remember that what we endure here on earth, you guys, it's literally the closest thing that we will ever, ever experience to hell. I think if I were in China or Iran or other countries and I said those words, I think people in that congregation might be like, 
Thank you, Jesus. And I think we can say it too. I just don't know that we understand the depths of that. <laughs> I definitely don't. So like, I need you to hear this. We need to get in our heads what this doesn't mean. Doing God's will, walking in the Holy Spirit, being obedient to God does not mean we won't experience hardship. It doesn't. So I want to ask God, as we kind of close out in prayer, and I want you guys to join me in this, I want to ask God for courage and wisdom to know his will and to accomplish the things that he's laid out before us to do with obedience, like we saw in Moses and Aaron tonight, right? I also want to ask God for humility and tenacity to weather whatever God may allow us to go through here on earth, remembering you guys that this time that we have here on earth is an absolute vapor in comparison to the eternity that we have in heaven. Amen. Let's pray. God, Man, Lord, I'm not acting like I've got any real comprehension of what all that looked like. And I can't imagine, Lord, being Moses and Aaron, Father, and watching these things take place. And Lord, I, can't, I can only imagine, Lord, that they may have just been as equally like, man, we're being obedient to you, but this is shocking. Lord, I've thought so often about the fact that when Moses stuck his staff down in the water and the water split in the Red Sea, when we're going to get to that part, Lord, what kind of crazy moment was that? And God, we're not here to chase those things, God. But I thank you, Lord, that we serve a God that's big enough to do those things. And Lord, we're thankful, Father, that we get the privilege of being used by you. And Lord, you know, God, the miraculous, I think, happens way more often than we see. And so Lord, I guess my prayer for us tonight is really, God, just a heart of courage. Courage to follow you in spite of our fears, in spite of even our doubts, God. And Lord, I thank you for the, the example, that, the bad example, really, Lord, that Moses said of arguing with you all the time. But I'm thankful, God, that even in the midst of those things, Lord, you, you don't give up on us. You didn't give up on Moses, God. And so, Father, would you help us not argue with you on these things? Lord, would you help us to be courageous and step out? God, would you give us wisdom and discernment on what, how to hear your voice clearer, God, and to know what you've got for us to do, Lord, and to set about doing it, to be busy in the work that you have for us here, Lord, because nothing else is of nearly the same weight of value as accomplishing your will in our lives, seeing you do stuff in us and through us, God. Lord, I pray that Great Bay Calvary would be a church that is about your will, is about trying to see what you have for us to do and then just running headlong into it. God, using any God-honoring means to bring you glory. God, I also pray, Father, for humility and tenacity because, God, we know, Lord, and I do want to pray, even right now, Lord, you know the three churches right now that are just getting crushed right now, Father for different things and different reasons, Lord. And God, we don't know all the details and we don't need to. I don't want to. Lord, what I do want is I want to see your church in every form and facet, Lord, return to a place of health. And God, if they're choosing to walk in flesh, Lord, I'm asking God that you would do what you need to do. Because God, we want to see your church thrive. 
We want to see, God, you moving, Father, and we want to see, Father, uh, falsehoods and things like that just fall away, God, that people would not be deceived. But Lord, I do lift up these churches in our area, Lord, these people that, man, Lord, are just going through it right now. Father, would you just work in their hearts? But Lord, in all these things, would you fill us with a sense of humility, Lord, to recognize that it is only by your, God, by your grace, God, that we're not dealing with the same issues. Lord, that we don't have things going on in our church right now. And Father, <laughs> we, we're, I can't sit here and act like we don't have something. We just might not know about it yet. you give us tenacity to walk through hard things not in our own power Lord I'm asking for the tenacity of the Holy Spirit in us I'm asking God for the humility that comes with knowing Lord that you are able to do amazing things and Lord you're able to do what you did with Job and in all things Lord I pray Father that we would just bring you praise give you praise Lord, just like the word says, that though you may crush us, Lord, I'll still praise you. Pray that that would be true in our hearts, God. Pray we would come to understand that in a real way. Move in us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for listening to this message from Great Bay Calvary Church in Dover, New Hampshire. We're so glad you found us. If you want to learn more about our services or need prayer for something going on in your life, Come connect with us at greatbaycalvary.com.